0: I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist for Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Towards a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. For many investors, the social element in environmental, social, and governance analysis, otherwise known as ESG, is notoriously difficult to define. One of the reasons is that rights represents a large part of the social factor, Some rights, like workers' rights, are better defined, supported by universally recognized codes, like that of the International Labor Organization. But many other rights are less defined. They're messy, abstract, and given to local interpretations, which sometimes vary widely. For example, what can we say about how technology and social media encroach on our individual and collective right to privacy? And for all our norms and legal conventions, we still know very little about the relationship between rights and markets. So how do we set about developing a framework to better understand a corporation's responsibility to individual rights? And how can we begin to measure the cost of rights violations borne by stakeholders and society at large? Today, I'm speaking to Professor Ken McPhail from the University of Manchester about the intersection of business interests and human, social, political, and environmental rights. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Professor Ken McPhail. Ken is Vice Dean of Social Responsibility at the University of Manchester. And he's also a Professor of Accounting at the University of Manchester's Business School. Um, welcome, Ken. Hi, great to be with you. No, Thank you. Um, first, you know, I wonder if you could uh, give us uh, an overview of your focus and maybe some of the initiatives that you're uh, working on right now.
1: Sure, so I'm uh, Vice Dean for Social Responsibility in the Faculty of Humanities. So that involves a broad range of things, involves looking after the social and environmental impact of the university as an institution. So we've got massive supply chains, we spend a billion uh, pounds uh, annually, we have a huge impact on uh, the local uh, community. So it's about thinking about our own responsibilities as an institution, but also about thinking about how we engage our students, 40,000 of them,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. in the kinds of issues that they will need to grapple with as future leaders of businesses, of new tech startups, of uh, big engineering uh, firms. So making sure that they're kind of world ready, if you like, um, and making sure that they understand and have the technical skills but also the intellectual skills and models to be able to engage with um, these uh, new global challenges really. And then so the other thing that I'm responsible for in that role is our research portfolio and making sure that we are researching in areas that um, are absolutely at the forefront of knowledge. Personally, my own, uh, my own research within the business school has been focused on an area that I think is potentially uh, one of the biggest shifts in global governance in decades, uh, and it's the area of business and human rights. I've been focusing on that from a number of different perspectives and in a number of different sectors, trying to think about, firstly, what does it mean for us to be asking business to play a role in protecting and advancing human rights, but also at the more practical and pragmatic level, what does this mean for business models, for profitability, for market reaction to, uh, to some of these big human rights challenges that companies undoubtedly impact on? Got it.
0: Thanks. You know, I mean, if you if you look at responsible investment and sustainability over the last one to two decades, I mean, the definitions have evolved radically. Um, they've been, become a lot more holistic, um, less narrow. But this issue of rights keeps coming up, and, and generally, people tend to gravitate towards human rights. But how do you think, uh, you know, this issue of rights, and, and you know, whether it's political, environmental, social, or human? Um, how do you think that has evolved over the last couple of years and where specifically, where do you think um, it sits in the sustainability agenda?
1: Okay, so that's a really, really important question. I think one of the areas why we've chosen to focus on rights is because we think that it's emerging as a lingua franca, a kind of common language of corporate, particularly social, responsibility. So while historically corporate social responsibility has perhaps been a bit nebulous. It's been something that um, we've maybe struggled to really nail down. I think uh, the language of human rights provides us with much more clarity and much more precision. It also provides us with an already established regulatory structure and framework because for many decades we've had evolving international covenants and international legislation and national legislation around around rights. So it already comes with quite a well-developed regulatory framework. The challenge is how we apply that in this slightly new context where we are seeing that we're not just asking states, nation states, because that's what the majority of the regulation is focused on is the responsibilities of states for human rights, but how that shifts when we think about business as having a key responsibility. So I think it helps in one way to provide clarity and provide a framework for thinking about, well, how, how do I as a corporation impact on, uh, on people and the environment? I think, however, that um, the issue of human rights is also uh, changing. What we mean by rights is, is evolving, so it's, it's a little bit um, malleable as well. So rights are th- some things which are socially constructed. We, mm. we, we construct our notions of rights, so I think there's been a really, really interesting shift. Uh, in the the nature of the rights discussion, for example, within the tech sector, as we um, appreciate the impact that technology is increasingly having on rights. Now, whether that's about the right to freedom of speech or the right to privacy or the right to be forgotten, um, I think these are all really, really important um, aspects of how the discussion on rights is, is changing. Um, and how it will change in in the future. And I also think that the language of rights is uh, now entering into a discussion of the environment. So we uh, now talk about environmental rights, the right to to water, for example, and various other things. So I think that rights is emerging as quite a key uh, language uh, for us for thinking about corporate social responsibility.
0: There have been a, a number of initiatives or organizations that have tried to advance sustainable objectives, but one of the most recent ones is the United Nations uh, SDGs, or Sustainable Development Goals. Um, They're national objectives meant to, to improve policy across seven different areas. Um, how much of that do you think really touches on you know, the, the language of rights? Uh, is it enough, and, and where do you think the improvements need to come
1: So again, I think the Sustainable Development Goals are a huge um, factor in thinking about uh, two things. In thinking about um, the changing relationship between business and society, we're no longer asking the private sector just to generate a profit, and everybody knows how difficult that is. But we're now asking companies to play an active role in furthering these big global goals whether it's around gender and women fascinating statistics about the role of uh, women in uh, supply chains, absolute fundamental role that they play down value chains so, so absolutely they're going to have an impact on what we're asking companies to engage uh, engage with and actually I fundamentally think they're also going to be a key future source for profitability for generating income streams. Hmm. So it's going to open up new markets as we focus on these kind of things. Now, back to your question about whether there's a strong enough connection between the SDGs on the one hand and the UNG uh, guiding principles on business and human rights. I'm not sure that there is. I mean, I think that amongst some academics that, that there would be trying to think about the connection between the two but in a practitioner world, in a corporate world, and in a regulatory world, in terms of, um, as we said, opportunities. So really interesting examples that uh, emerged recently when I was uh, discussing these issues with private equity firms. I think private equity firms view the potential contribution of the private sector to, to solving some of these issues as a key for uh, determining future investment strategies for private equity. So I don't think that there is um, enough of a language of uh, of rights associated with SDGs, but I think
0: SDGs are really, really important. Do you think that uh, corporate behaviour is starting to change? And do you think it... I mean, is that... Reflected in you know how they think about their stakeholders, you know, or customers, i.e. Uh, the privacy issue around technology, or is it a genuine concern to avert controversies deep down in their supply chain, for instance?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really difficult to talk about uh, business in generic terms. So uh, the answer to your question is yes to all of those points. So you have companies that are really quite advanced in thinking about their business model and thinking about regulatory changes that that are coming maybe not soon but are going to are going to come down the line that are going to impact on their on their business and those um, we might call sector leaders are engaged in our thinking undoubtedly there's very many examples still of companies that um, business and human rights, the, the human rights dimensions are part of PR campaign, so that they're they're, they're part of the, the PR machine, and then there's another tranche of businesses that that still haven't engaged and they just don't get it, so it's not PR and it's not genuine it's just um, it's just something that they haven't engaged with. and I think um, again, we can talk across different parts of the business. Sector so SMEs, for example, we had a an event recently in the UK. We have modern day slavery legislation that should apply to every company over thirty six million uh, turnover. Now that uh, piece of legislation it touches uh, eight thousand companies in the UK alone, but there's still very many that are disengaged. Now how do we how do we account for that? How do we deal with that? How do we change it? Um, It's going to be through consumers. uh, It's going to be through the increasing bite of the market, um, particularly the big institutional investors, um, as they don't want to be associated with companies that have poor human rights records. Uh, The banks, um, through their human rights due diligence. um, And increasingly, from a university perspective, from a talent management perspective, because they're graduates which we consider to be some of the top in the world, just don't want to work for companies that have got bad, bad human rights records and who are in the press because of some major uh, human rights violations in the Congo or, or wherever.
0: And that's actually what makes this, uh, I mean, particularly your background, so fascinating because it's not just a rights issue. It's also an accountability issue. I, it's an accounting issue. And, you know, given your background, that you, you obviously do a lot of work in rights, but you have a background in accounting. That's, that's the big question. How do you account for <laughs> things that are so abstract? Yeah. And, and, you know, as you said, uh, social constructions that yeah. often are, tend to be very specific yeah. regionally or, yeah. or
1: otherwise. Great question. So, again, people uh, often find it a little bit incongruous that a professor of accounting is interested in <laughs> in business and, and human rights. But, first of all, human rights is at the core of every single piece of accounting. Every single um, annual report that's produced is based on a human right. And it's uh, the right to own property. So the, the reason why companies give accounts to shareholders is because shareholders have a right to receive it. They're, they own a stake, they, they're property owners and we recognize that right. Now, what I think is really fascinating about this is um, how that model is shifting. I really do think that there's a whole lot of discussion around the business entity, what it's for and who it should be responsible to. And the question is saying, well, why is it only the property rights that we recognise as something which is so fundamental that it needs a big hundreds of pages report from companies that are quite often bigger than governments? Um, So there's been this shift towards thinking about how we change those notions of accountability to ensure that we meet the broader requirements to report to people that are impacted by the activities of big corporations. So that's one point. The other point about human rights nebulous and how do we account for them, again, is a great question, but Over the past uh, 20 years, colleagues in business schools and practitioners have been grappling with the fact that um, for decades now the source of corporate value resides primarily, that's contested, but primarily in intangibles. So it's in the brand name, it's in the intellectual capital, it's in these other intangible assets that we as accountants have had to find ways to bring into the balance sheet, bring into the p and So I think that's one of the areas actually where we have a bit of expertise as accountants. We're used to trying to formulate accounting policies that capture corporate value and the risk to that value. So for us, the challenge is, is then how do we introduce the language of human rights and apply our thinking, for example, around intellectual capital, tangibles, intangible sources of value, to the discussion of, of human rights. And I should say, though, as well, that um, some of the early evidence is suggesting that there is real material impact on company, on corporate profitability, on the bottom line, from the mining sector, for example. If you think just in terms of lost productivity for dealing with um, indigenous uh, land rights issues. I mean, regardless of how you want to frame that, it's a drain on management time, it's a drain on profitability, it's a hit to your bottom line. So, And you could talk about different examples from different sectors. Right
0: so an accounting standard for, for rights, I mean, is an incredibly ambitious proposition. Um, and when we look at, you know, can de- accounting on a standalone yeah. basis, I mean, over the last, you know, Two to three decades, we've had gradual, uh, sometimes too gradual convergence towards uh, an international uh, financial reporting standard. Do you think a rights version of that is, is possible? You know, in, in a generic sense. <laughs>
1: Again, another brilliant question. So we, <clears throat> so we've got two responses on that. I think that um, those increasing focus turning on the. International Accounting Standards Board, the um, uh, International Financial Reporting Standards. And the question to them is, as an international standard setting body that has at its core, if you look at its constitution, a claim to be about furthering public interest, what's not in the public interest to be advancing human rights? So there's there's actually an awful lot of public scrutiny on these big international accounting bodies to say, well, could we apply the requirements of the United Nations getting principles, not just to businesses, but to the big regulatory bodies that are developing the regulation around business, things like the International Accounting Standards Board. And we've argued in a paper recently that we should actually be thinking about that. Now, what that means in terms of practice, whether it's then we have an international accounting standard on human rights, or whether it's about building due diligence into the standard-setting process and saying, well, how do we take human rights into consideration in the different areas that we're developing standards for, then I think that that's that's really important. I should say that there are important developments around... um, Attempts to develop an, uh, to develop accounting standards, reporting standards. If we look at the the RAFI, the reporting framework around the UN guiding principles that shift and Mazar's are involved in, then that's an attempt to uh, to develop those types of accounting um, accounting standards.
0: Hmm. Um, what do you think that investors can do in this area in terms of addressing? Rights. Um, I mean, particularly uh, rights risk, um, whether it's reputational or, or, you know, or financial. Because it feels like, you know, it seems like there's an ex-post problem here, where um, there are some well-known cases uh, of rights violations. Uh, but we know we, we've known ap- afterward. You know, uh, this there's been, you know, typically a reform in place with the company to, to uh, address these issues. But it's it's been hard as an investor to produce you know, a, a framework mm-hmm. that systematically, you know, addresses all these issues.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I think we're still at the beginning of understanding both the impact of human rights on, uh, on portfolios, on, on investments, and also what role that the markets and investors can play. So we're actually involved in a, a research project with the PRI that's specifically trying to address those issues. But to talk more specifically, I mean, I think there's uh, already evidence of institutional investors engaging with companies. Now, there's a really important discussion to be had around what do we expect from companies and from um, investors if they find human rights violations in the companies that they invest in. Actually, um, maybe the right thing to do is not to stop investing. We've seen examples of how quite often that can um, actually make the problems for those people whose rights are violated, can actually make things worse. So so what what um, is the right thing to do? Maybe sometimes it's not disinvestment, maybe it's engagement. And how you actively engage with companies, uh, again, down their supply chains, to make sure that simple questions that you can ask about, well, what's your due diligence down your supply chain, How's that? do you think that's going to affect your risk and how does that expose you to, to new risks are all things that um, investors can do to nudge behaviour in, in the right uh, kind of direction. I, I do think that institutional investors are becoming more uh, attuned to their own reputational issues of holding stocks that then subsequently appear um, and, and newspaper reports. And I think just even recently, the Paradise Papers are again an example of where people um, really haven't done the due diligence of following the, the line of where the, their investments are, are, are ending up and, and you know, now uh, perhaps regretting that. So I think that we are at an early stage of understanding the investment impact and the role of the investing community within academia, within our uh, business and human rights work, we're probably spending the majority of our time focusing on that because we believe that the market and institutional investors and the investing community are probably the biggest lever for change. Right? So outside of regulation, outside of the state, the investing community with its trillions and trillions of uh, dollars of, uh, of influence, um, we really see the investing uh, uh, community as as the key lever for for change.
0: Perfect. Well, Ken, look, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it, uh, walking us through sort of rights and 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 how we account for it. Um, last question. I mean, just going forward, is there anything we should watch out for in terms of? You know, papers or events.
1: Yeah, so we're um, we're working on a few things at the moment. I think the PRI paper that should be due, the initial report, which should be due early twenty eighteen, on values to valuation, how we translate this uh, impact around human rights into understanding impact on profitability and then impact on share price would be would be one thing. We're doing another piece of work with the Ethical Trading Initiative which is looking at value chains, particularly the role of women. I think this gender issue is going to become increasingly significant and important for companies. Finally then, a third piece of work is looking at the uh, IT sector. We absolutely think that that's a hugely significant area of focus where we don't fully understand the potential impact of a rights narrative on um, the tech sector in terms of profitability, in terms of regulation, in terms of business models, and in terms of positive impact on on individual human rights. So watch out for um, rights in the tech
0: sector. Well, perfect. Ken, again, thanks very much. And, uh, And everyone listening in, tune in for the next podcast. Thanks for listening. Take care, bye. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell sustainability strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment, or look for us on iTunes.